1: At least six people arrested during those Christmas Day protests as the NYPD
2: tried to keep the crowd under control, but things got out of hand. The crowd clashing with police. People were arrested on a variety of charges, including disorderly conduct, resisting arrest, and criminal mischief. At least six people
1: arrested. One police officer was injured. The mayor of New York City saying there's been hundreds of protests
2: since October 7th, attacks by Hamas. And his organizers were calling to cancel Christmas. They were targeting the busiest areas of this city good times. I mean, there is nothing like Christmas in New York City. Ah, yes. Sweet holiday bliss as you had more anti-Semites hit the streets to try to stop Christmas in, in New York City. Boxes, Alexis McAdams on that report. And uh, it is obviously not the great one uh, here with you. And, and as per usual, when I have the The uh, pleasure of spending some time with you. I'm in anything but an underground bunker. Instead, I'm in a studio that is just seven feet above sea level. And that at one point had its roof ripped off during a hurricane. So there's all that going on. But I am back in sunny South Florida. And I say back in because and I'm not going to complain about the weather in, in South Florida, given what many have dealt with over the past few days. Uh, but uh, the weather had been kind of not, not so nice out here, and today it ended up being absolutely beautiful. So it is sunny South Florida once again. Uh, Brian Mudd here with you, and I am the host of The Brian Mudd Show, which is hubbed out of my home station, WJNO in West Palm Beach. You can catch uh, my podcast, The Brian Mud Show, wherever you get your podcasts and check out at Brian Mudd Radio socially, wherever it is that you prefer to be social. And I do hope that you and your family had uh, the merriest of Christmases. Really do hope it's been a wonderful holiday season for you and continues to be. Certainly has been for for my family and and for me. Now, we did also have a Christmas uh, surprise of sorts. Uh, At least that was delivered the way that it was. Though I don't know that it's a big surprise. and It came uh, from Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He laid out his Three prerequisites for peace. The three prerequisites for the end of the Israel-Hamas war. Quoting Netanyahu in his Wall Street Journal journal opinion piece yesterday. The three prerequisites. Hamas must be destroyed. Gaza must be demilitarized. And Palestinian society must be deradicalized. Okay, well, I mean, given the complexities of the situation, you might be familiar with the saying, be brief, be brilliant, be gone, like in an important meeting, or if you're saying something where you need to be uh, especially effectual. Anyway, I mean, it kind of comes across that way, but the getting there, now that is where it gets a little more complicated. Again, quoting Netanyahu, he said, these are the three prerequisites for peace between Israel and its Palestinian neighbors in Gaza. Okay, so... In answer to demands for a peace deal, yes, yes, and yes. On those three prerequisites, yes, yes, and yes. Now, this isn't just about what's best for the Israeli people and the state of Israel. This is what's in the best interest of the entire non terroristic supporting world. Let's take each of these three demands for peace and context. Let's actually break this down into The reality on the ground, how we got here and what really would need to happen for these terms to be achieved. First up was the destruction of Hamas. Okay, Since 2006. A designated terrorist organization, you've had Hamas leading the Palestinian territories. The same terrorist organization, which in its charter in 1988, and again, a This is Hamas's charter for those who are not aware. Quoting it, the Islamic resistance movement is a distinguished Palestinian movement whose allegiance is to Allah and whose way of life is Islam. It strives to raise the banner of Allah over every inch of Palestine. Israel will exist and will continue to exist until Islam will obliterate it just as it obliterated others before it. Got a lot of warm and fuzzies in there, right? I mean, just an opening act to Hamas's charter. Anyway, continuing, uh, quoting from Hamas's charter. Palestine is an Islamic land. Since this is the case, the liberation of Palestine is an individual duty for every Muslim, wherever he may be. The day the enemies usurp part of Muslim land... Jihad becomes the individual duty of every Muslim. In the face of the Jews' usurpation, it is compulsory that the banner of jihad be raised. So-called peaceful solutions and international conferences are in contradiction to the principles of the Islamic resistance movement. These conferences are no more than... A means to appoint the infidels as arbiters in the lands of Islam. There is no solution for the Palestinian problem except by jihad. All right, good times. Good times. So that is the charter statement of Hamas as founded in 1988. Never has changed, by the way, so it still is today. Now, given that it is Hamas's charter, given That Hamas has carried out the greatest atrocities against the Jewish people since the Holocaust. Given that Hamas remains the next-door neighbor of Israel and has made clear that uh, you might have noticed there, they don't exactly believe in coexisting with Israel. Not going to be so cool with that whole deal. What is the actual only solution here? Well, it it is that Hamas started this fight. It, It is that Hamas has stated Israel has no right to exist. And it is also the case that Hamas has stated that there is no peace. There can be no peace with Jews. There can be no peace with Israel. Thus, Netanyahu could not be more correct in his call for the absolute destruction of Hamas as the first prerequisite for peace. It is a must. Any remnants of Hamas that exist, not going to work. Not going to work. And as an aside, the entire world is less safe for them existing. This takes us to the second prerequisite. The demilitarization of Gaza. Now, to accomplish this, Netanyahu said it will require establishing a temporary security zone on the perimeter of Gaza and an inspection mechanism on the border between Gaza and Gaza and Egypt that meets Israel's security needs and prevents smuggling of weapons into the territory and that it would therefore require overriding security responsibility over Gaza. That one is a little more complicated, right? Overriding security responsibility for Gaza. Only time can, and only time will tell how tricky attempting to pull that one off amid what would, no doubt be claims of a reoccupation of disputed Gaza territories, how that whole thing would work. And the battle that would take place, not only to make sure that would happen, but also the battle in media coverage around the world of that taking place. Now, for a quick refresh on that one, I'm just going to walk you back to how we arrived in the first place, because remember, One of the big arguments here is, well, you know, the Palestinian people, I mean, they've continued to be occupied and and those oppressive uh, Jewish people, those uh, oppressive Israelites, they, they just they continue to repress. Well, it was in 1948 under terms agreed to under the United Nations General Assembly that the lands that comprise modern day Israel and the current Palestinian territories Well, that they were designated to create an Arab territory and a Jewish state. It was on May 15th of 1948 that Israel was officially recognized by the United Nations as a state. The Palestinian territories, they were governed by two nearby Arab governments, Egypt and Jordan. And that continued until June of 1967 when Israel's influence expanded in the region including holding influence over what then became became known as the occupied. This is where it came from, the occupied Palestinian territories. Okay, so from June of 67, you had the occupation of the Palestinian territories, and that Israeli occupation in the disputed territories, that continued until 1993, when the Israeli military withdrew from much of the territory, recognized the Palestine Liberation Organization or the PLO through the Oslo accord and it is really important just kind of pause here for all of those who are just remarkably ignorant all of those that that talk about the occupation all that those that talk about the repression understand that there has not been any occupation since 19 19- 1993, understand that Israel signed on to the Oslo Accord. And it was at that point, the goal by many world leaders, including Israel's government at the time, became a stated two-state solution. So you had in 1993, Israel back out of the disputed territories. You had them sign on to a court, an accord that said, we want a two-state solution often lost in the discussion of world events today. The reason that didn't happen was because almost immediately, you had PLO leader Yasser Arafat that said, you know what? That's pretty cool. I think we'll go ahead and take advantage of this situation. They saw Israel as weak at that point. Oh, they're going to grant us legitimacy? Well, shoot, we'll go ahead and use that and we'll carry out some terror operations against the Israelis. I mean, after all, that is what we really want to do anyway. So, yeah, you have the PLO as soon as they were granted an opportunity for legitimacy, as soon as they had that path for that two state solution. What they do, they went out there and they carried terror attacks and, and carried out terror operations against. Jewish people in Israel. And as a result, Palestine was not officially recognized as a state by the United Nations. And the region continued to be viewed through the prism of territories by the West. And all that has changed since then is that the Palestinian people traded one form of a terroristic government for an even more militant one in Hamas when they voted them into power in 2005 and when Hamas came into power in January of 2006. And that takes us to the third prerequisite, which is no doubt the most problematic of all, the de-radicalization of the Palestinian people. This one is the one that's a whole big old ball of wax and something I've, I've previously covered. What the Israel-Hamas war is mostly about gets down to basics within Islam, and specifically the problem it presents when discussing any type of enduring peace is Islam when viewed and when governed through Sharia law. That's the problem that we get into. And I'll pick up with the third prerequisite and the reality on the ground to attempting to achieve that one next. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mark
3: Levin Mark Levin here, folks, with essential information about a possible digital dollar and its impact on IRAs and 401Ks. Educate yourself before a digital dollar comes with Augusta Precious Metals' downside of the digital dollar report. Created due to popular demand, this report is packed with important digital dollar insights. Best of all, it shares a strategy smart investors have used to hedge against economic uncertainties like the digital dollar. Act now to learn more with Augusta Precious Metals. Do it for your financial future. Receive the free Downside of the Digital Dollar Report today by texting LEVIN to 68592. That's L-E-V-I-N to 68592. Again, text LEVIN to 68592 or go to AugustaPreciousMetals.com. Text data and message rates may apply. Performance varies. Consult your financial professionals before making investment decisions and get risk disclosures at AugustaPreciousMetals.com.
4: According to U.S. Central Command, three separate strikes took place and destroyed the targeted facilities and likely killed a number of Kataib Hezbollah militants. The airstrikes came in response to a drone attack against the Erbil Air Base that houses U.S. service members. Three Americans were injured in that attack, one critically, bringing the total number of attacks against American interests in the Middle East to 103 since mid-October.
2: Yeah, that is Fox's Trey Yinks on the report, and of course... Yes, this is about all of us and American interest as our military has continued to come under assault in the region with the Iranian-backed terror uh, networks in, in play, which, of course, you have Hamas that is backed by the Iranian mullahs as well. Back to the coordination leading up to the October 7th terrorist attack. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. And we are talking about the... Three prerequisites, the three prerequisites that Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu laid out uh, as necessary for attaining peace in the region. And we've covered the first two so far, that Hamas must be destroyed, that Gaza must be demilitarized. And we're, we're now discussing the third, that Palestinian society must be de-radicalized. And it's not that the first two are easy; they most certainly are not. But this third one in particular, this one uh, is where it gets especially tricky. And uh, you've been conditioned to believe that terrorists aren't really Islamists, and that the rest of hardcore Islamists—they really just want sunshine and lollipops, right? They—they they really just want freedom and you know uh, happiness and joy, just like everybody. And none of that is actually true. And and I've depicted this for years. But to be brief, it's like this. Islam has a bunch of different sects, not unlike most other religions. But what's different is that what we call terrorism is actually a sect of Islam called for in the Quran by Muhammad himself. And it's carried out through Sharia law. That's why I've long said that Islam, when practiced under Sharia law, is evil. It is. It, period. That's a non-negotiable. And I'll get to why that is the case. And... Why it's a non-negotiable, because, well, evil is evil. And, and yes, there are more Muslims that pay homage to Sharia law than we would like to admit. There have been so many studies on this over the course of time. But the one that for me was the most eye opening in this context was a, a 2013 Pew Research Center study on Muslims in 39 different countries. And they questioned whether, you know, back then things like suicide bombings or attacks on civilians can be justified. And what they found is that at least 8% of Muslim populations in every country studied said, yeah, you know what? They can be justified. And the United States at the time, 14% of Muslims said, yeah, you know what? Suicide bombings, other terror attacks are justified if they're being carried out in in the name of Allah. OK, so, you know, you who well, kind of makes you think twice there. And in fact, you, you had that number appear to grow in pulling as time has gone along. So we're going to dive a bit deeper into the de-radicalization element, because it's not just over there, although it starts in the Palestinian territories where we need help. I'll take some of your calls as well. Brian Mudd in for the great one. Mark Levin.
3: Mark Levin here, folks, with essential information about a possible digital dollar and its impact on IRAs and 401ks. Educate yourself before a digital dollar comes with Augusta Precious Metals' downside of the digital dollar report. Created due to popular demand, this report is packed with important digital dollar insights. Best of all, it shares a strategy smart investors have used to hedge against economic uncertainties like the digital dollar. Act now to learn more with Augusta Precious Metals. Do it for your financial future. Receive the free Downside of the Digital Dollar Report today by texting LEVIN to 68592. That's L-E-V-I-N to 68592. Again, text LEVIN to 68592 or go to AugustaPreciousMetals.com. Text data and message rates may apply. Performance varies. Consult your financial professionals before making investment decisions and get risk disclosures at AugustaPreciousMetals.com
0: mark Levin, the champion of liberty and true conservatism call mark now 877-381-3811
5: this ad calls on the school's president michael schill to define and denounce the actions of october 7th take a listen
1: it's time for president michael schill to adopt the internationally accepted definition of anti-semitism stop the hatred stop making us live in fear define and denounce anti-Semitism. Is that too much to ask? On
5: November 14th, she'll announce the school is creating the president's advisory committee on preventing anti-Semitism and hate.
2: Yeah, and that certainly has been a major part of the eye-opening behavior stateside. I was talking uh, in the previous segment about the significant registered anti-Semitism and even right down to where yeah, 14% of American Muslims... 10 years ago said, yeah, you know what? Even suicide bombings are justified as long as it's you know done under the correct outline tenets of the, the Quran." Okay. And so you begin to put all the pieces together as we've seen everything play out on college campuses and spill out into all segments of society since October 7th. Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin, and we are talking about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's three prerequisites for peace. Uh, the three prerequisites that he laid out in an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday. It was a, a Christmas Day op-ed by Netanyahu. And the three, that Hamas must be destroyed, that Gaza must be demilitarized, and that Palestinian society must be deradicalized. And as I've discussed now, that the first two are by any means easy, anything but but it's really the third one where things get especially hairy. That Palestinian society must be de-radicalized because of the pervasiveness of this. And it's something I've studied for a really long time. It's something that I, I've discussed as we have had related conversations over the years because I wanted to understand after 9-11 what really was going on. After you know we marched into Baghdad and Iraq and, and the Iraqi people didn't grasp freedom the way that we had hoped and many had expected, including the Bush administration. So what is it that really animates a lot of these folks? And well, we we can see it if we just happen to read the Quran and understand the aspects of it that certain people buy into. And what we've seen over the past 11 weeks, in many respects, many segments of society that believe in Sharia law or it may just be so ignorant that they just go along with those who actually do and become useful idiots. I think that's a lot of the case of, of what we see on college campuses and even the Christmas Day protests in New York City. But the Quran's chapters are, are known as surahs. And it is in Surah 9.5 that you find this. I'm quoting from the Quran now. So when the sacred months expire, kill the Mushriks. Those are believers and in, in other gods. Wherever you find them, catch and besiege them. Sit and ambush for them everywhere. Okay, so that's where the idea of terror attacks comes from. It's right there in the Quran, called for by Muhammad. Catch them, besiege them, sit and ambush for them everywhere. As long as they're a believer in other gods. Continues by saying, when the four four, forbidden months are over, wherever you encounter idolaters, kill them. Seize them, besiege them. Wait for them at every lookout post. Then in, in Surah 47.4, it states this. When you meet the unbelievers in the battlefield, strike off their heads. Have you ever wondered, hey, where is it that the whole idea about beheading people came from? They're, well, it's right there in the book. It's got to go to the Quran, Surah 47.4. Oh, yeah. When you meet the unbelievers in the battlefield, strike off their heads. Got it. Got it. Clear. Then in in Surah 476, it states that the true believers fight for the cause of God, but the infidels fight for the devil. Fight then against the friends of Satan, unless there be any doubt. You also have Surah 4829, which states this, Muhammad is the messenger of Allah, and all those with him are forceful against the disbelievers, merciful among themselves. And I always loved that part because they you know, were peaceful to each other. They you know, would behead and you know terrorize everybody else. But so yeah, the, the Quran has always called for, always called for, and continues to call for the acts that we recognize as terror against everyone who isn't quote unquote with Muhammad. And it really is the ultimate: you're with us or against this type of thing. The question just really becomes: how many people buy into this? This is why, for 1,500 years, people have been slaughtering people and torturing people when chanting, God is great. And as you will hear me say, as my saying has always been, there are two sides to stories, one side to facts. Those happen to be the facts, however inconvenient for many they may be, about what's called for by Muhammad in the Quran. And what separates civilized Muslims in society from terrorists across societies is... Just whether one strictly adheres to the law of Muhammad under Sharia, Sharia law, no Sharia law, no Sharia law. You'll find people that are most likely going to be peaceful and you know will will assimilate with other other folks in society. Sharia law, if they're real believers in Sharia, no. It's quite clear as I just laid out to you, and so that is the the bigger problem as we continue to take a look at how we would achieve Netanyahu's third prerequisite for peace between Israel and its Palestinian neighbors. Bad note, let's go to Joe in New York. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello. Hey, Joe.
0: Hey, good morning. I get the good evening, So, I want to say the Democrats are running this country. They don't believe in America. All they want to do is get Donald Trump. They forgot about the men and women who fought for this country so we could be free. They don't care about America. Now, during World War II, I was five years old. My brother went in. He was 17. There's 12 years difference. He was ruling in Paris and France, right? He got the Purple Heart. Then it was my time to go in. I joined the Navy Reserves when I was 17 years old, and then we went active after high school. But the thing is that I was on an aircraft carrier. And the most beautiful state in the world is coming home and seeing the Statue of Liberty and saluting the Statue of Liberty and saying, I'm proud to be an American. But the Democrats don't believe in America. Uh, Cuba's only 90 miles away from.
2: Yeah, Joe, I mean, it's an amazing account you have and you can hear the passion in your voice with that. And, uh, you know, may God bless you, your family, appreciate your your service and, and also your continued appreciation for this country. What do you have to say about Cuba?
0: Now Cuba's only 90 miles away from Florida. If, if, if a bomb goes through, you know, you can say goodbye to Florida, and they'll blame Donald Trump for that. They won't care. But the thing is that, thank God for the United States Navy, because I was a Navy man. They got the aircraft carriers out there, and they all carry the atomic bomb. And if one country drops a bomb on us, we should destroy them. Because it ain't fair. We're losing American lives for nothing.
2: Now, Joe, I, I, I appreciate the call. And, uh, you know, I hear you and understand I get what you're saying about Cuba as well. Uh, being in, in South Florida, we tend to be super sensitive uh, to that, not to mention uh, so many folks that are, are Cuban exiles here and, and first generation Cuban families that have a true appreciation for freedom and understand that freedom isn't free. And have so much great perspective that they've been able to share with so many in this country. And I, for a long time, I always joked that one day South Florida would save this country from itself. And you go back a decade ago, even a a lot of my own listeners in South Florida would think I was crazy because if you took a look at the demographics of South Florida, if you took a look at the voting patterns of very blue counties like Miami Dade, like Broward, like Palm Beach County. the people thought it's only going to get worse. And I said, no, the pendulum one day will swing because you have enough people here that really understand what's on the line. And it, we've seen it. We've seen it. And it's a huge part of the story about how Florida has become a red state. We're seeing it uh, with similar demographics, Latino, Hispanic populations across the country now as well. And to your point, even you know about Cuba generally, I've all, always said y- you don't have one that operates in a vacuum. China is not just China. China is Russia, is Iran, is North Korea. With little rocket man, it's Cuba. It's Venezuela. It's Nicaragua. That's the Axis power network of today. That unholy alliance. And uh so there's there's a lot of point to be made there. Let's go to Zapania. Uh, Zepani, I believe. Hopefully I got your name right there. Welcome to the show.
6: Thank you very much. And, uh, the, I, I have just a quick, uh, couple of quick points to be made. Uh, I'd like to call attention uh, uh, to you and uh, Mr. Levin and all of your fine readers about the analogy between the Dreyfus affair in France and what's going on now in America, U- American universities. Uh, You'll note, uh, uh, emo email, email, Zola who defended Dreyfus, uh, said that this affair brings out the decadence, the decay and the anti-Semitism of France. And he's afraid that it will remain totally with France, uh, forever. And it has, you know, it keeps on popping up, but, uh, we should recognize, uh, uh the analogies, you know, um, I'm no uh, uh, genius, but uh, Sir Isaac Newton once said, "Genius is the ability to uh, uh, to uh, to recognize analogies." And I think that uh, the American people are smart enough once they're aware of this to uh, you know to uh, uh, recognize that these two things are related. Uh, the- well said.
2: Well, well said. I, I appreciate the the call. Yeah, I mean, there are still enough Americans that uh, once they have their eyes open uh, to information will take in the reality that's before them. The one thing that we we do do still have going for us is that uh, while there are are no doubt a lot of people that are awfully confused, especially as it comes to anti-Semitism these days and very disturbing ways as well it still is the overwhelming minority of our society and a lot of people that otherwise could be pulled into it can be pulled out of it informationally and I, i'm very much an optimist that way i've always uh, fashioned myself as real as two ears on the side of optimism and i think we have to when it comes to uh, our fellow americans let's go to jacob in kansas jacob welcome to the show
7: hi there thanks for having me on
2: you bet um
7: yeah. Hi, you're you're Brian, yeah, filling in for Mark. You got it. How's it going? I sorry. I I was calling in. I I wanted to, you know, ask you about the to talk about the other side of the coin of what you were talking about about half an hour ago saying of what the only solution we have for the conflict in Gaza right now and who's actions are acts of terrorism and whose acts are justified and under netanyahu's conditions in the washington post of and you were talking about what what is our only remaining solution and um
2: OK, so, Jacob, I'll take a couple of things. It was The Wall Street Journal, not The, the Washington Post. But I mean, just uh, a quick question here. So if you have Hamas, so his first condition and that was the one I opened with. So given the timetable you, you mentioned, I imagine that's what you're referencing. He says Hamas must be destroyed and Gaza must be demilitarized. So if Hamas has a stated goal, as, as it is in their charter, and I read their charter to where Israel must be destroyed, there can be no Israel as long as Hamas is in existence, how could there ever be peace if Hamas were allowed to exist? How is there an, an other side of that, as you suggest?
7: Well, I agree that there can't be peace with those sentiments, but I don't believe that. That's their that charter, sir. The- that's their charter.
2: I you believe- cannot believe it, but what I would actually do is tell you to read it. Uh, so that, that's the problem. And, you know, I appreciate that You know, that you're listening to the show. I appreciate that you're still searching information. But the problem is thinking it means learning. Thinking doesn't mean I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but I'm going to say stuff because there's got to be another side. No, Hamas states clearly in their charter. There's no ambiguity that Israel cannot exist. So, I mean, hey, uh, there's there's just one side to that one. Let's go to Mike in Long Island. Mike, welcome to the show.
8: Hey, Brian, how you doing, buddy?
2: All good. Hope. Yeah, appreciate it.
8: Awesome. And you did a great uh, mini synopsis of the history of the state of Israel uh, a few minutes ago. One of the things that uh, you didn't address is uh, this argument that the Jews are colonizing uh, the country. So I wanted to uh, just um, maybe educate some of the listeners, like this previous caller, that Jews have always lived in what is the land of Israel forever. Correct. Uh, yeah. As we know, that all the archaeology shows. And before 1948, Jews were living there. There were Jews and there were uh, Bedouins. There weren't really, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it was a Muslim country. There were Bedouins that were living there. And the land was, just you know, was controlled by the Ottomans. And they decided to, to break it up. So the Jews got a certain part of the land. And... Um, the, I guess the Bedouins that were living there got another part of the land. Now, the argument that you always hear from young people is that after World War II, Jews came and colonized the land. And what they don't understand is that the land was given, part of the land was given to the Jews for a Jewish state. And yes, Jews came from all over the world, but they didn't come into a, what was a Palestinian land.
2: Great call, Mike. Yeah, I mean, it's a good point you make. I appreciate it. We're up against it. We'll continue this thought in this conversation next. Brian Mudd in for the
3: great one. Mud, Levin. Mark Levin here, folks, with essential information about a possible digital dollar and its impact on IRAs and 401ks. Educate yourself before a digital dollar comes with Augusta Precious Metals' Downside of the Digital Dollar Report. Created due to popular demand, this report is packed with important digital dollar insights. Best of all, it shares a strategy smart investors have used to hedge against economic uncertainties like the digital dollar. Act now to learn more with Augusta Precious Metals. Do it for your financial future. Receive the free Downside of the Digital Dollar Report today by texting LEVIN to 68592, that's L-E-V-I-N, to 68592. Again, text LEVIN to 68592 or go to AugustaPreciousMetals.com. Text date and message rates may apply. Performance varies. Consult your financial professionals before making investment decisions and get risk disclosures at AugustaPreciousMetals.com.
1: West has apologized to the Jewish community in an Instagram post in Hebrew after unleashing a slew of anti-Semitic remarks in Las Vegas. Earlier this month, it read in part, It was not my intention to hurt or disrespect, and I deeply regret any pain I may have caused. Yay's yeah, apology comes after he went on a 10-minute rant about Donald Trump, Adolf Hitler,
2: and Jesus. You might see a uh, ye of little faith, although he's been all over the map when it comes to faith in recent years. Uh, Yeah, anti-Semitism, ignorance, it's been pervasive. And I've referenced, as we've talked about, the three prerequisites for peace laid out by Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And I've also talked about a Pew Research study that was kind of eye-opening as to the amount of Muslims around the world that adhere to Sharia law, which, well, that's where terrorism comes from. Well, they found the Pew Research study in these dozens of countries, that they were studying 64 to 74 percent of Muslims in African countries and in the Middle East, favor Sharia law. As for the Palestinian territories, it was most recently measured at 75 percent, which, by the way, explains why they elected Hamas, a known terror organization, into power in the first place. So that's the inconvenient truth to all this. As we take a look at the third prerequisite, the de-radicalization, three quarters of the Palestinian people are radicalized. So, yeah, the Quran hasn't changed in 1500 years. Sharia law hasn't changed in 1500 years. Terrorism under it hasn't changed in 1500 years. The only thing that has changed over the past 1500 years is political correctness and maybe the pervasiveness of ignorance by many throughout society.
3: Now
0: broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. About the economy, sir, what's your outlook on the economy next year? All good. Take a look.
9: Start reporting it the right way.
2: (laughs) Gotta love that. Gotta love that. You've been struggling financially. The problem is you. Problem is you. And the reporters who report on economic stuff to you. All you people with your economic problems, with your struggles, with your financial concerns. You're the problem here. You shouldn't have them. Because it's good. And the outlook is good. Just stinking reporters and you stinking Americans with your financial problems. Yeah. All right. So he really is economically illiterate. I've actually had a, a slight change of, of opinion on the president of the United States regarding economic and financial literacy. Now, I'll explain here momentarily. Hope you had the merriest of Christmases. I hope the holiday season has treated you well and continues to to do so. Uh, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. I am the host of The Brian Mudd Show, hubbed out of my home station, WJNO in West Palm Beach. You can find me socially at Brian Mudd Radio, and you can also find The Brian Mudd Show podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And it's truly an honor and a pleasure Every time I have the opportunity to be here with you. See, as we're talking about Joe Biden and the cost of financial illiteracy, I've had an understanding that he is economically illiterate. See, what you just heard, that clip you just heard, as President Biden left the White House on Saturday to spend Christmas with his family at Camp David, He did something that he rarely does. He walked over to reporters and and answered some questions. Now, maybe that was his idea of a Christmas present to the press, to actually entertain an unscripted question or or two or a few. Something that the former and perhaps future president of the United States did on a daily basis. But anyway, one of the questions actually came from great television's John Decker. His question to Biden do you think a president, any president, is absolutely immune from criminal prosecution? Now, it's a question that's potentially relevant to both the former and perhaps future president of the United States. This says the United States Supreme Court delivered its own version of a Christmas gift to Donald Trump and his legal team as it refused special prosecutor Jack Smith's requests to the court to bypass a federal appeals court considering the legal argument that team Trump is advancing in an effort to have many of the outstanding legal challenges pending against him, including the entire federal January 6th case dismissed. So what that SCOTUS decision to not bypass the federal appeals court means, by the way, is that the federal appeals court in in Washington will take up the case With oral arguments that are scheduled to begin January 9th and the outcome of that case could then be appealed to the United States Supreme Court at whatever point there's a decision which could not only uh, potentially lead to a win in one court or the other but that could at a minimum put the current timetable for the trial to begin which as of today is March 4th a day before Super Tuesday and the presidential primaries could put that whole timeline in peril, which, by the way, could then also impact every single other uh, Trump trial that is scheduled this year, each of the four. Anyway, uh, President Biden's response to Decker's question, asking about whether a president is immune from criminal prosecution. It's also potentially relevant to the current occupant of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. You know, Biden's answer to the question. It was, I can't think of one. I can't think of one. Now, one wonders, as Hunter Biden is set to be arraigned in California January 11th on nine federal tax charges that pull the the big guy ever closer to the legal fray, one wonders whether he'll come to regret having said that. But I did say at the onset that this is about financial literacy or illiteracy, as the case may be. So it, it wasn't the question about pending legal showdowns. That spoke to the level of financial ineptitude of old Joe. It was his answer to another question he briefly fielded, which reinforced this. One reporter asked President Biden a question that you you heard here at the onset of this hour about his outlook for the economy entering 2024. And his answer, all good. Take a look. Start reporting it the right way. Uh, Doesn't that just make you feel so much better? You know, after nearly three years of historically high inflation that's crippled the personal economy of the average American, isn't it great to know that the the problem isn't binomics? but no, the problem is you, that you, that your family, that your friends, that your neighbors, that you have all only been struggling because the only economic issues are with you. And those stinking reporters who don't quote, report the economy the right way, if only they did. You know, the, the term tone deaf, especially coming off the holidays when you got people that are especially sensitive to how little affordability there is in today's society, term tone deaf doesn't begin to scratch the surface of the absurdity of that statement. But it does speak to a bigger issue, both with him and also one that does exist generally, in our society when it comes to matters of the economy. Now, I have a natural predisposition to provide the benefit of the doubt that policymakers, especially those rising to the level of of the presidency, that they understand the most basic of economic concepts. Which is to say that most often when politicians, especially the current president of the United States, but anyway, just generally, when they say stuff, that sounds as though they're economically illiterate, I'm inclined to think they're playing a political game in which they're relying on their voters just being economically illiterate in order for their espoused nonsense to sound as though it might actually make sense. Over time, this tactic has proved effective, especially effective, for many Democrats who have had success in, in suggesting that there really are all the freebies from Uncle Sam. From Obamacare to... Obama phone? Okay, the, the Obama phones. Two to free Biden bucks? You know, there's seemingly been a large contingent of voters who think that there really is an endless stream of, of just free candy and puppies and free government goodies. That the government has the ability to give away things for free. Now, of course, the multi-year inflation crisis that most Americans are far from having recovered from began to paint the picture about just how expensive it really is when government gives away a bunch of, quote-unquote, free stuff. But still, the the average American remains financially illiterate. This is something that Biden is evidently pinning his entire re election bid on. To give you an idea, in this year's TIAA Institute's financial literacy exam, what do you think the average score was? What do you think the average score on a financial literacy exam was this year? Survey says a 48. That's not a 48 out of a 50. That is a 48 on a 100 scale. Not even half. Not even half. What this means is that most adults still don't know most things. When it comes to the economy, when it comes to financial literacy, I mean, that's big time. That's an eye opener. Most adults don't know most things when it comes to finances. And while the statistic is a broad indictment of our education system, illustrating the abject failure of the education establishment to provide even the most basic education necessary, one to successfully navigate the real world financially well it does at least help explain how and why americans could have listened to joe biden throughout points over the past three years and thought yeah you know what i am voting for that guy it's still kind of a hard thing for me to wrap my brain around but you have people that that did hear about all this stuff that you know were on the the free obama phone kick and, and thought that thought that it all made sense but anyway in recent weeks, I mentioned my perspective had changed about the president. And it is in recent weeks that my perspective on the issue as it pertains to President Biden has changed. I no longer think that Joe Biden knows what he's saying is stupid. I don't think he would have said what he did in answer to that question by the reporter if he, if he did. I no longer think that he, he realizes And is simply counting on his voters just being even dumber than he is. Now, I I think he's every bit as ignorant as his voters, which, by the way of his policy, would explain a few things. You know, my change in perspective with this mini revelation began with what President Biden recently said pertaining to inflation. It was at the onset of his White House supply chain initiative that he told companies, and this is a quote, any corporation that has not brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down, even as the supply chains have been rebuilt, it's time to stop the price gouging. Give the American consumer a break. Now, it would be one thing to say something so hilariously stupid in a public address, one that is meant for the average economically illiterate boob who might vote for him. It's another thing when it was a mostly targeted address for corporate leaders. Biden's commentary was so absurd. It prompted CNBC. Okay, so this is CNBC here. Certainly not a, a spin doctor for the right. CNBC in covering that story said, quoting their, their coverage, while it's true that the annual rate of inflation has cooled from its high last summer, this doesn't translate directly into falling consumer prices. It only means that prices are rising at a lower rate. (laughs) Well, bingo. Well, bingo. The the most recent inflation rate at 3.2%, what it means is that prices are 3.2% higher today when they were at over 40-year highs last year, right? I mean, we get this As, as basic... You don't have to be fully, uh, you know, financially literate to to figure that one out. But just 40 year highs for prices last year and things are three point two percent more expensive than 40 year highs. And Biden's talking about prices coming down. He's talking about price gouging. But you know what? The fact of the matter is that the average U.S. corporate margin, the rate of profit, Casey, okay, the average average profit margin this year is nearly three percent lower than it was a year ago. In other words, as President Biden is lecturing companies about price gouging, the average company selling the average thing has effectively eaten half of the increase in the rate of inflation over the past year. Biden should be thanking businesses for eating all this inflation. Just imagine if they hadn't. But that's where we are. It is rather remarkable. I'll continue with this train of thought next. Brian Mudd in for the great one. Mudd love
3: Traveling for the holidays? Pure Talk has you covered. Because they just added international roaming to over 30 countries. That's right. Whether you're making calls from the Vatican or on a beach in the Bahamas, you're covered. From the steps of Buckingham Palace or your villa in Santorini, you dial away. And here's the best part. There is no rate increase. Pure Talk still saves the average family almost $1,000 a year with plans starting at just 20 bucks a month. And... They put you on America's most dependable 5G network. So the coverage is second to none. So don't delay, folks. Switch to Pure Talk, a veteran-owned wireless company with simply the best U.S. customer service team. Now with international roaming to over 30 countries. Go to puretalk.com slash Levin. That's puretalk.com slash L-E-V-I-M to make the switch. And you'll save an additional 50% off your first month. That's big. That's puretalk.com slash Levin to start saving on wireless right now.
4: You heard it from the president himself. He says the reporting on the economy is the problem. If you ask him, the economy is in good shape right now, and he's predicting it'll stay that way in 2024. The president is trying to sell Bidenomics to voters who are frankly skeptical.
2: Yeah, Fox's Grady Trimble on the report there as we are talking about uh, Bidenomics. The president effectively saying the problem is you. If you think that the economy isn't sunshine and and lollipops, that it isn't great. The problem is really just you, stinking American. Anyway, here's the thing. The Biden administration, though, perhaps not the president himself, But the Biden administration is well aware that the average American is unhappy with the economy. And an average of current polling, if you take a look at the real clear politics average on just the economy, just uh, on uh, the question about the economy, President Biden has 37 percent approval on the economy compared with 60 percent disapproval. And on that note, you recently had White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre, who said, uh, we understand that people are still not feeling it we get that well she might have said that we understand that people are are still not feeling it we get that but when you say we i'm not sure again you mean the president because he clearly articulated uh, just prior to christmas that uh, no the economy is great and seem to seem to think that there's a problem with it if only the reporters were reporting it differently then people would just feel great you know it's uh it's a funny thing. You know, I, I've long said that you can lie to people about policy on the front end, what policy will do. And if you have somebody that has a predisposition to believe you, you can get away with that, right? I mean, classic example would be Obamacare, right? You can keep your doctor, you're gonna save what, twenty five hundred bucks uh, you know, a year, that it- cold. You can lie to people on the front end about what it'll do. And if they want to believe you, they're going to likely believe you and go along with it. But what one thing you can never do, this transcends politics. You cannot lie to people about what is or isn't in their wallet. They know what is or isn't in their wallet. So what we ended up seeing uh, recently, going back to some of President Biden's addresses, including Uh, through his supply chain initiative with some corporate leaders, right down to his comments about the economy on Saturday. It's what led to me thinking that, no, he really is no longer playing the game, if he ever was. He really just is that economically illiterate. And he provided an economically illiterate address in what might have been an earnest effort to try to move the needle on the economy as opposed to the typical pu- public platitudes. He really might have thought that telling companies they should stop price gouging, even though their profit margins are 3% lower than they were a year ago. He really thought, you really might think that prices have actually come down even though they're 3.2% higher now than 40-year highs a year ago. And so, yeah, this is all part of why I'm now of the belief That is not just for show that President Biden, well, he really might be just that economically illiterate, which going back to the TIAA Institute's annual study. But that actually would just make him normal. That just tends to be a bigger issue when the person who leads the world's largest economy doesn't understand that a lower increase in the rate of inflation doesn't actually equal lower prices. You know, there have often been jokes about the best and the brightest not getting into politics. That's been taken to a spectacular new low with Old Joe running the show. Take some of your calls next. Brian Mudd in for
3: the great one, Mark Levin. Traveling for the holidays, Pure Talk has you covered because they just added international roaming to over 30 countries. That's right. Whether you're making calls from the Vatican or on a beach in the Bahamas, you're covered. From the steps of Buckingham Palace or your villa in Santorini, you dial away. And here's the best part. There is no rate increase. Pure Talk still saves the average family Almost a thousand dollars a year with plans starting at just 20 bucks a month. And they put you on America's most dependable 5G network. So the coverage is second to none. So don't delay, folks. Switch to PureTalk, a veteran-owned wireless company with simply the best U.S. customer service team. Now with international roaming to over 30 countries. Go to puretalk.com slash Levin. That's puretalk.com slash L-E-V-I-M to make the switch. And you'll save an additional 50% off your first month. That's big. That's puretalk.com slash Levin to start saving on wireless right now some people talk
0: about the tea party we are the tea party call in now 877-381-3811 that caravan
10: leaving Guatemala-Mexico border a few days ago. They just passed a Mexican military outpost. Along the way, cartels will help provide transport, buses, and U.S. taxpayer-funded NGOs will help the migrants focus their story as to best pass their asylum interview. And rather than tighten that fear of persecution standard, President Biden offers humanitarian parole, also known as catch and release to the vast majority of those encountered at the border. 10,000 this weekend in Eagle Pass, Texas. similar numbers in arizona where the administration
2: yes we have a record-sized caravan for this year making its way to our southern border yet again as you heard the fox report that was laying out the conditions that are there in fact it's been fun as we've received some reports even throughout the course of today with some of these caravanners making their way towards our southern border. Some of them are already making demands from Joe Biden to take care of them, which, I mean, no doubt, he's been good for that. Taking care of Americans, taking care of taxpayers, not so much. And as Joe Biden himself said, the economy is good. And in so many words suggested that if you don't think it is, the problem is with you. But where the economy has been good is, well, if you're an illegal immigrant, I mean, for example, when was the last time that you had a plane ticket to the city of your choosing that was completely paid for by somebody else? But in this case, as taxpayers, we're doing this on a daily basis for those who come into our country illegally. And that's just the starting point of how much of our money is being thrown at illegal immigrants. It really is an affront in so many different ways. And the only way this could ever be tolerated by people is through financial illiteracy, which is part of what I've been talking about. And, and not just that, sadly, the average American is uh, financially illiterate. We, we have this through a TIAA Institute study this year. But now I'm of the belief that the current president of the United States is, that he's not just playing political games, that no man really just is financially illiterate. Of course, we've also been talking in the uh, show about the three prerequisites for peace in the Middle East, laid out in an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal yesterday on Christmas Day with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And on that note, let's go to Tony in New Jersey. Tony, welcome to the show.
5: Hi, Brian. Happy New Year. Merry, belated Merry Christmas.
2: Merry Christmas, um, Happy New no, Year to you we, as well. We
5: <laughs> as we look at all that's going on, um, bamboozle is the word. We have a president that wants to bamboozle us. But I wanted to talk to you about uh, Gaza, yeah, the Gaza Strip, and what happened in October. And I think of two people, maybe three, who really, in two thousand and four, it was George Bush, it was Tony Blair, and Ariel Sharon came up with the idea that this would work. And of course they left Gaza on its own. And and here we are. Um, and I look at these people and I say, what do they have to say today? Because one of the articles that wrote about that at the time um, said, mm-hmm. you know, why did they think they could take this on? And whose idea was this? And you just look. And you get the impression that everyone does everything without any thought, whether it's finances, Brian, or whether it's economics or whether it's uh, safety. There's no thought, you know, to what's happening except maybe the immediate gain that somebody's making. And I wanted to lay that out.
2: It's a great point, Tony. Uh, Thank you very much for the call. I think it's a great call. We have a short attention span society, so that plays into it. But one thing in particular that I think speaks to what you're generally talking about here is that we tend to be a society of linear thought and analytical thought. It's, it's not the easiest thing to achieve. I'll never forget a Harvard study in the late 90s that showed that only one and a half percent of people just naturally will take a look at the world or take a look at issues analytically. But whether it's natural or not applying that type of thought to issues is important we have been trained and a lot of this comes through our public education establishment just to think in a linear way you're you're spoon-fed whatever the narrative is and that's that and then people will take that linear thought and move on to the next and i i think that speaks to the the state of financial illiteracy i think it it speaks to people that can take a look at President Biden, can take a look at Joe Biden. A lot of other politicians go, how do these people get elected? Well, I, I think it answers a lot of those questions. But then, then you get into um, you know, the anti-Semitism, as we are talking about in the, the first hour. And you're, you're talking about, you know, as it pertains to Gaza, conditions that were, were set by world leaders, including President George W. Bush in, in 2004. And that's important because the single biggest mistake of George W. Bush was that he just did not understand Islam. And that's why I spent some time in the first hour breaking down Sharia law. At that point, I was kind of in that universe where I believed that, hey, you know what, maybe we will be met as liberators when we get into Iraq, when when citizens are free to when we weren't. I needed to understand what was different here. And it's when I read the Quran and really began to understand what the people who are animated by way of terror and that view the world through that prism, where they're coming from, had George W. Bush had Tony Blair and company. Had Ariel Sharon kind of looked at things that way, you know, maybe some of the decisions made at that point would have been different. I mean, they, they certainly should have been. This also is the case when you take a look at the Oslo Accord in, in 1993. The reason that the Oslo Accord went nowhere, the reason you had the. Israelis. Sign on to a document stating we want a two state solution. We want right now to recognize the PLO and we want to have a Palestinian state. The reason they did that was also through a a lack of understanding about what so many of the Palestinians believed their adherence to Sharia law. It's uh, fundamental in all this. Let's go to Tyreek in Baltimore. Tyreek, welcome to the show.
11: Hi, good evening. Uh, I wanted to, uh, Make some helpful comments about the history of Palestine. Okay. Uh, I gained this knowledge from my years in the Department of Near Eastern Studies at the Johns Hopkins University. Um, there was never an Arab Palestinian government ever, 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 ever that minted coins in Palestine because there was never an Arab Palestinian government in charge. Sometimes the Persians were in charge. Sometimes the Greeks were in charge. Sometimes the Turks were in charge. Never a Palestinian Arab people in charge. They never had... That's accurate,
2: but um, I'm not sure that I understand what your point is.
11: My point is that the people, the Arab individuals who live there now, are not the original people. Just like someone who plays for the Cleveland Indians doesn't mean that he's from Cleveland and he's from the Indians. He's just living there today. He's not part of the original people. Just because you live there doesn't mean you're the original guys. The Jews were the original guys. They were there for the last 3,000 years. And that's the significant difference. The Jews are the aboriginal people. It's not the Arabs were there, and the Jews threw them out. No, the Jews were the. Why are they called the Arabs? Because they rode out of the Arabian Peninsula on their horses and conducted a fantastically successful military campaign across the Middle
2: East and North Africa. And part yeah, of it's a. Real. It's a good call, I, and I, I appreciate the call. There, there is irony you know, <laughs> as we're talking about uh, some elements of political correctness uh, during the course of tonight's show as well. Uh, of course, the Cleveland Indians no longer exist for uh, aforementioned political correctness. It would be the the Cleveland Guardians. Uh, so <laughs> that's a, it's a whole other. Um, let's go to uh, Dave in Florida. Dave, welcome to the show.
12: Hey Brian, glad to have you here. Appreciate um, it. I got a couple things. One is uh, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, and may Hamas go to hell for life. But the other part is for a good interview, uh, remember Alan West? He was the lieutenant Cur- colonel that ended up being kicked out of the military basically for helping
2: his troops. I knew Alan well um, on on a personal level. I I knew Alan quite well. He was actually my congressman for a short time, the two years that he was in Congress.
12: Yes, sir. Yep. And I met him at a uh, constitutional party that we had with a bunch of bikers and uh, good people. Um, But the other thing is, is that what is going on there in the U S especially Biden butting in because he, Everything he has done has turned to basically manure um, They need to end up getting rid of them for life because even during the ceasefire they fired what over a thousand rockets into uh Israel. You will never end up yeah. finishing that unless you they follow what the Israels have for their planes.
2: Yeah, Dave. I, I and that train of thought is is correct. I do want to say one one thing here. Uh, you know, the o- onset of responding to to your comments, and that is, you know, I, I still am of the belief that that hate is is not the answer. And I understand the sentiment. I understand the frustration. I have little doubt, given my beliefs, that many with Hamas will end up in a not so good place at the the end of their story. But. I I still don't think it's it's our place to project that hate. That is uh, not what we are are called on to do. Uh certainly those of us who who are Christians and and uh, for those who are are god-loving people generally re- regardless of faith. Uh so that that I don't know is is helpful. Uh, when you take a look at the you know the the broader issue at at play there well there's no doubt that ceasefires not going to work and i remember having this conversation when the ceasefires were going on again if you read hamas's charter it's all there they say there can be no peace the only peace under their charter is if there is no israeli state and even then given their beliefs they'll come for the rest of the quote-unquote infidels Uh, but mission number one is the er eradication of israel so yes the violations of ceasefire everything else Really no no surprise there. The difference is, I do think Benjamin Netanyahu, leading the show in Israel, knew this and was being strategic in his efforts to try to extract as many people as possible without compromising their operation generally. Because once the you know, so-called ceasefires ended, you did end up seeing a resumption as though they hadn't missed a beat of their military operations in the stated goal of the elimination of Hamas which Benjamin Netanyahu laid out quite clearly in his three prerequisites for peace in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. Let's go to Harrison in New York. Harrison, welcome to the show.
1: Yes, nice to have you substituting, Brian. I always enjoy it when you're there. I have Thank a couple you. of points historically. I have a couple of points historically to make, and I hope I'll be able to get them in. First of all, as far as the Jews being indigenous, historically that's correct. However, they were driven out around 70 AD by the Romans, and they were prevented from returning, and if you know the Bible, you understand why, but their period of of punishment ended 1845 years later. I can go into that another time, but they began returning in 1878 and they returned to an utterly desolate desert that people just used as a pathway to get from Turkey to Egypt and back and forth. There were, there were no real residents there. So when they began settling, it was a desert and they were the ones that brought it into fruition. And then the Arabs came in looking for work and the Jews, needing workers, welcomed them. Arafat's father organized labor unions and things among the Arabs there. And, but he was somebody who believed in Sharia law. And Sharia law told him that extermination of the Jews was necessary. And he became an, admir- uh, an admirer of Adolf Hitler. And he and Hitler had a pact where, uh, because Palestine had been part of the Ottoman Empire, before the Ottoman Empire fell. And uh, that, that pact said that Hitler would take over most of the world, and particularly Europe, and get rid of the Jews there. And if Arafat's father would get rid of the Jews in the Middle East, Hitler would let him control what had been the entire Ottoman Empire. And it was this alliance between to, between the uh, and it was Hitler who suggested calling themselves a, a separate people, the Palestinians. That never existed before.
2: It's a good call. Uh, well stated. Appreciated, Harrison. And uh, we will continue the conversation next. Brian Mudd in for the great one.
3: Mudd Lovin. Traveling for the holidays? Pure Talk has you covered. Because they just added international roaming to over 30 countries. That's right. Whether you're making calls from the Vatican or on a beach in the Bahamas, you're covered. From the steps of Buckingham Palace or your villa in Santorini, you dial away. And here's the best part. There is no rate increase. Pure Talk still saves the average family almost $1,000 a year with plans starting at just 20 bucks a month. And... They put you on America's most dependable 5G network. So the coverage is second to none. So don't delay, folks. Switch to Pure Talk, a veteran-owned wireless company with simply the best U.S. customer service team. Now with international roaming to over 30 countries. Go to puretalk.com slash Levin. That's puretalk.com slash L-E-V-I-M to make the switch. And you'll save an additional 50% off your first month. That's big. That's puretalk.com slash Levin to start saving on wireless right now. When the federal government spends more, you have less. There's no question about
11: that. That's why we've got to rein in federal spending.
2: Yeah, uh, Georgia rep, Buddy Carter, with a little common sense there. And, yeah, financial illiteracy is a problem. Uh, It's part of what we've been talking about throughout the course of this hour. And, yes, you have a lot of your money that is being wasted. And, no, this this particular training thought isn't a continuation of what the federal government does with our money, though that certainly applies But it is about the hard cost of financial illiteracy to us. I've referenced a study that illustrated the extent to which this country is financially literate or illiterate as the case may be, where the average score was a 48 out of 100, the average adult on a financial literacy exam this year. But what does that actually come down to to you if you're not financially literate? Another study from the National Financial Educators Council showed that the average cost this year to the average American who is not financially literate stands at eighteen hundred and nineteen dollars a year. And for some Americans, fifteen percent of Americans who are financially illiterate, it will cost them over ten thousand a year. So anyway, to put this in perspective in today's dollars, over the course of a forty year career, the average person is working the equivalent of a year and a half simply to pay. For the added costs of not being financially literate. And we're all familiar with the saying that it's wise to work smarter, not harder. Improving um, financial literacy would be the epitome of that expression, and it'll likely come as no surprise that literally every aspect of one's financial situation, regardless of age or income, well, it, it improves as financial literacy improves. And it's perhaps the greatest lesson that most Americans still need to learn. And I have a hunch that if the lesson, if that particular lesson was learned, that far fewer people would ever take a look at Joe Biden or anybody else like him and think, uh-huh, uh uh-huh. yeah. Yeah, you know what? That guy is making a lot of sense. That kind of stuff wouldn't happen. In other words, improved financial literacy wouldn't just benefit our own personal situations, but there's a really good chance it would help might say, make our country great again. Speaking of which, in the third hour, we'll dive into the Trump trials in the 2024 election cycle. That is coming up next. And I am Brian Mudd and for the great one, Mark Levin.
3: In today's digital age, where cyber threats loom larger than ever, safeguarding your personal information is paramount.
2: Former President Donald Trump making a late Saturday pitch to a federal appeals court, hoping the judges will throw out charges relating to attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. In the filing, Trump's team calls his criminal indictment unlawful and unconstitutional, writing President Trump has absolute immunity from prosecution for his official acts as president. The indictment alleges only official acts, so it must be dismissed. The filing comes a day after the U.S. Supreme Court declined to fast-track the case, a temporary blow for special counsel Jack Smith. Yeah, solid report as always from Fox's David Spunt there, kind of laying out what's happened here recently. And we are going to wait, watch, and see what will be with the Colorado Supreme Court decision that will attempt to keep Donald Trump's name off the state's primary ballot, but also the much bigger ball of wax that continues to be in play. And that is whether, for example, any number of these different cases and charges can be tried against him, including. The first one that is set to be tried against him, which is the January 6th related case, the federal case in particular. And uh, it is a pleasure, as always, uh, when I have the opportunity to be here with you, Brian Mudd in for the great one, Mark Levin. I am the host of The Brian Mudd Show, which is hubbed out of my home station, WJNO in West Palm Beach. You can catch my podcast the Brian Mudd Show, wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me socially at Brian Mudd Radio. And I uh, certainly hope you had a, a very Merry Christmas, wonderful holiday season, and, and hope that it continues to be. And you did have uh, some, some good news, uh, certainly for Team Trump around the, the Christmas season here. I want to walk a little bit through what we are setting up for. And the Trump trials in the 2024 election cycle last Thursday, uh, Thursday, when I was guesting for uh, the, the great one, I talked a fair amount about the anti democratic party and the marketing scam. That is the democratic party, because what they are actually are trying to do is to keep you from having a voice, keep you from being able to vote for Donald Trump, keep his name off of a ballot. It doesn't, Come much more anti democratic than that, but anyway, as we are, are going to watch what will will be with that entire uh, Colorado case that will have implications in in many other states where similar efforts are being made there's the matter of the other get Trump efforts in court, and on the one hand it's logical to suggest that if Donald Trump is convicted and jailed for a crime or crimes and any any one case or, or multiple cases that it could dramatically lower the likelihood that he would be elected president of the United States. There have been some polls out there show there is a, a, a small sliver of, of the country that may vote for him in a hypothetical rematch with president Biden. But if he's convicted, if he's jailed, well, maybe I'm not going to now. However, as we've also seen throughout the course of this year, with every indictment against Trump has come increased support, and not just in Republican primary circles, but also in the context of the general election. So this, along with the abject failure that is Joe Biden, has resulted in ever-growing support for the former and perhaps future president of the United States. And even if Trump were convicted and jailed, uh, he would still be eligible to be elected president of the United States, you know, the founders, they intentionally left open the possibility that a political establishment could seek to imprison their political enemies. So the founders, they built a system that that placed trust in the will of the people over the desires of, of government officials. And the only exception. Is in the case of insurrection, which, of course, is why the Marxists are in that full on full court press to attempt to keep Trump off of state ballots under the, the 14th Amendment insurrection clause. But the bottom line is that despite having been indicted in four criminal cases with 91 pending charges against him, still not one of those charges, not one of the 91, is for incitement to insurrection, including the federal January 6th related case. So any argument designed around Trump potentially becoming ineligible based on potential convictions, is false. That whole idea is just a farce. The, the fact of the matter is that Trump could be convicted in each of the four cases that currently pinned, uh, are pending against him. He could be found guilty in each of those cases and on every one of the 91 charges brought against him. And even then, he could be elected, and he could serve as the next president of the United States, If we will it, if voters will it. So the argument is one of a political variety, whether Trump would have enough support to win if convicted, not whether he could be elected. Which, again, is why the effort is so extreme. Just keep him off the ballot and try to make it happen that way. Now, in in weighing the political possibilities, the timeline of the trials is is the first and most important consideration here. A lot of discussion about this. There's going to be a lot more as we head straight into the primary season by mid-January. And we are starting to get into the arguments for some of these cases and whether they should be tried. Right now, the timeline of the four cases pending against Trump looks like this. March 4th is the scheduled start date for the federal January 6th case. March 24th is the current start date for the New York State Stormy Daniels hush money case. May 20th is the current start date for the federal classified docs case. And September 6th is the Georgia State 2020 election case. All right, so March 4th, March 24th, May 20th, and September 6th, two federal cases, two state cases. And it's currently set up to go federal state, federal state. Now there's a major caveat that applies to the three cases to be tried subsequent to the first case, March 1st or um, March 4th rather. And there's also a big old caveat for that March 4th date as well. Uh, So as I mentioned previously, the United States Supreme court delivered its own version of a, a Christmas gift to Donald Trump as it, Recently refused Special Prosecutor Jack Smith's request to the court in an effort to significantly speed up the legal process to bypass a federal appeals court. Considering the legal argument that Team Trump is advancing in an effort to have many of the outstanding legal challenges pending against him, including the entire federal January 6th case dismissed. So what that SCOTUS decision means is that the federal appeals court in Washington, they're going to take up the case with oral arguments scheduled to begin January 9th. The outcome of that case could then be appealed to the United States Supreme Court at whatever point there's a decision, which could not only potentially lead to a win by team Trump in one court or the other, but that could at a minimum put that timetable for the trial to begin, which again is March 4th, a day before super Tuesday in the, presidential primaries it could put that in jeopardy so those dates may change or those cases may be delayed due to the proceedings of uh, cases to be tried before them and of course the possibility that the supreme court rules that trump's claim of presidential immunity for charges pending against him is valid which could make much of this entire conversation a moot point but nevertheless trump as a defendant obviously can't be in multiple courtrooms At the same same time, and and that matters for potentially multiple reasons, given the political implications involved as well. The first overarching question about the potential political ramifications of a Trump conviction or convictions is whether there could even be resolution to the cases prior to two elections. Let's just say they did end up moving forward. Could they come to a conclusion before the election on that note? Many have suggested, especially since multiple alleged conspirators had pled guilty and taken a plea deal, that all of the Georgia RICO case, uh, you know, of all the cases, the Georgia RICO case is a slam dunk. That is the one where Trump is almost certainly going to be found guilty. But the fact of the matter in that particular case is there's never been a like case that resulted in a judgment in fewer than five months. In other words, not only will there not be a judgment determined in that case prior to Election Day, there won't be a judgment in that case prior to Inauguration Day. You know, specific to the Georgia-RICO case, under Georgia's RICO law, there's only been one case that has gone to trial, and it just so happened to be a high-profile case that gained national attention and was prosecuted by none other than Fannie Willis, the same prosecutor trying the Trump case. The previous Georgia-RICO case was the 2009 Atlanta public schools cheating scandal in the scandal. 178 Atlanta area public school educators were implicated and 35 were indicted as part of a scheme to artificially improve the standardized test scores of students. 23 of the educators took plea deals. The other 12 went to trial. The original indictment took place on March 29th of 2013. So the first thing is you see how long it took to even get this thing to trial. Then the trial for the 12 who declined to enter the plea deal, that began on September 29th of 2014. Remember, this is all from stuff stemming in 2009. And the case concluded on April 1st of 2015. It was 18 months from the indictment to the start of the trial. That's a length of time that if you apply it to the Trump case, I mean, shoot, we, we might be talking about... Uh, you know, having a result there after Election Day 2025 for the states that have off-year elections, not 2024, would obviously be of no impact for next year's presidential election. So that one, as people talk about the Georgia Rico case, it's an absolute non-factor within all of this. As for the Mar-a-Lago docs case, that is the third case currently scheduled, which means that due to the legal proceedings in the first two cases, it very well may be forced to be delayed. However, even preceding All those possibilities in early November, you had Judge Eileen Cannon that indicated that she's already said to push back the start date of that trial due to the complications of the classified evidence in question and being able to see and build a proper defense to what the prosecution is going to bring, but also the trials that are scheduled before it. Now, one of the considerations is for the trial to be pushed back until after the presidential election. Nevertheless, any meaningful delay From the current May 20th start date, well, that would almost certainly result in a verdict that would be reached in that case after Election Day as well. So those two cases you can pretty much just scratch off in terms of any legitimate outcome, even if they move forward prior to Election Day. And that takes us back to where the timeline starts. The one case that appears to pose the greatest risk to Trump is the first case, that January 6th case. I'll pick up there. Next, this is Brian Mudd, in for the great one.
1: Mud Lovin.
5: California Governor Gavin Newsom responded to fellow Democrats' attempt to block former President Trump from the state's ballot, saying that while he views Trump as a, quote, threat to liberties and even democracy, they, quote, defeat candidates at the polls. The comments came on
2: Friday following last week's ruling by the Colorado Supreme Court to remove the former president from the 2024 ballot, saying he is ineligible to run under the U.S. Constitution's insurrection clause. So that is Fox's Tanya J. Powers in that report. And it also Newsom's comments that, hey, you know what? Uh, We in California should not be taking efforts to try to prevent Donald Trump's name from being on ballots. We uh, should try to defeat him at the ballot box. That that also comes after his lieutenant governor. Said after the Colorado decision that the state of California should do absolutely everything within the state's power to try to keep Donald Trump's name off of ballots there as well. So Newsom breaking with the Lieutenant governor and actually making some sense there. He's an entirely correct. The way this country was set up, the way that this country was founded was to err to the judgment of the voters, not to try to have the establishment prevent the voters from voting who they want to vote to be president of the United States. That's why, The obligations, the mandates to become president of the United States are so few Uh, in in terms of of age requirements, being an American citizen. One could be a convicted felon and still be elected and could serve as president of the United States. The foresight of the founders. Been talking about uh, with, with the Trump trials, the four different pending cases against him and have worked through. Two that are of no concern in terms of the timetable. Realistically, you know, taking Trump off of the trail and being a distraction. Yeah, potentially. Although, again, every time we have seen, you know, these these legal games being played against Trump, it's benefited him not only in, in terms of the polling in the Republican primary, but even when you take a look at general election hypothetical rematch polling with Joe Biden. So that may well backfire if they keep him in a courtroom and he can continue to make his case while being on trial, whatever trial that happens to be. But nevertheless, the timeline of the Georgia Rico case, no way that comes to conclusion prior to Election Day next year. If you take a look realistically at the timetable involved with the classified documents case, the Mar-a-Lago classified docs, that is pretty unrealistic as well. You have the Stormy Daniels Hush Money case in New York. I mean, Lord knows that they, they, we're still talking about Stormy freaking Daniels, it, it, absurd on, on so many different levels. And of course, that one could be pushed back because of how close it butts up against the January 6th case, the first case that is scheduled March 4th, right before Super Tuesday. That is a case that if it were going to go off as currently planned, it's the case that would appear to pose the greatest risk to Trump. Because not only could that case, if it did start March 4th, be decided before Election Day, but, it, but it's also the case that if, if it's allowed to be brought to trial against the former and perhaps future president of the United States, it's one that's being tried before a judge appointed by President Obama in Washington, D.C. A location Trump won only 5% of the vote in in 2020. And st- statistically independent of other considerations, you start talking about jury pools and everything else in Washington, D.C. Obviously, the least favorable for Trump in any of these cases as well. So of all the Trump criminal cases, that one is one above all others to watch. But even then, if Trump were to be convicted in that case, you do still have the potential for a federal appeals process to play out, a process with the potential to reach the United States Supreme Court. And who knows how long that might take. But of course, as it applies to Republican primary voters at large, none of this, none of this will be decided before almost all, if not all, primary voters have voted. And the interesting thing is, you continue to see where it looks like Democrats plan for this to be the case, just as they wanted Donald Trump to be the candidate in 2016, may backfire on them again next year. Brian Mudd in for the great one. Mark Levin The establishment's worst nightmare
0: Mark Levin Call in now 877-381-3811
3: China's President Xi Jinping promising to prevent anyone from, quote, splitting Taiwan from China in any way. Xi on Tuesday, according to the Xinhua News Agency, making those comments a little more than two weeks before Taiwan elects a new leader. Xi also telling a symposium, quote, The complete reunification of the motherland is an irresistible trend. The motherland must be reunified and inevitably will be reunified.
2: Yeah, Fox is Paul Stevens on that report. Oh, by the way, so with everything else that we've got going on around the world in this country right now, you have the China propagation over Taiwan that continues to exacerbate. And yeah, I've talked about this previously, Brian Mudd, in for the great one, Mark Levin. But you take a look at the de-escalation of conflict under Donald Trump. I mean, what modern president did you have a de-escalation across the board? Not only no new wars, but just an absolute de-escalation. And it gets back to what I've previously referred to as the crazy man with the nukes conversation. I loved entertaining this conversation during the 2015 primary cycle into the 2016 general election cycle, where you had so many never Trumpers and then just so many leftists that were saying, oh, my gosh, you can't trust Donald Trump with the nukes. And my my point always was, okay, well, let me walk with you for a moment. Let, let's just say that Donald Trump as president would be unhinged. She can't trust him. Oh, my God, she could fire nukes. If you're a bad actor somewhere around the world, are you going to be more or less likely to engage in provocation that might bring about the ire of the president of the United States? Any way you were to slice it, it would necessarily result And the United States and by proxy, the rest of the world being more safe. And that's exactly what we saw, right? You had Trump right away bomb the blank out of ISIS ending the caliphate, which he said he would do. And did we have any more problems with any Islamists, with any radicals, with any Sharia law adherents, with any terror? That nonsense stopped. But the remainder of the Trump presidency, you get him out of there, you go back to the Obama era policies. And here we are again under threats of Islamic terrorism. You see what's happened in Israel. You see the bad actors step up around the world. China provocating over Taiwan, the Philippines. They're ramming Filipino military boats seemingly on a weekly basis anymore. It is. Of course, all after what we saw in Ukraine. With Russia. Yeah, you, know, you had a majority of Americans, and memory serves the polls, like 66% of Americans ha- have said that there's no way that Putin and Russia move on Ukraine if Donald Trump was still president. So we continue to see these these problems exacerbate. And by the way, we're going to continue to see this over the next year. One of the ironies about Donald Trump and for that matter, other Republican candidates looking as though they are extraordinarily well-positioned to be Joe Biden in next year's presidential election, you have a lot of these bad actors that are going to feel a sense of urgency to try to accomplish whatever it is that they want to accomplish while we have such a feckless president. And so that's something else that just all comes with making the wrong decision at the voting booth. And it's also why it's that much more important that we as Americans – are able to vote for the next president of the United States, the person that we believe should be the next president, not having the anti democratic party and uh, led by Marxists on the Colorado Supreme Court at at this point, and they're willing to strike donald trump's name from the ballot and all the others that seek to do it in and other states across the country. So we monitor all of the various different legal wranglings and maneuvering around Donald Trump as we enter next year all right let's uh we've been talking about uh, throughout the course of the show the conflict as it pertains to israel and Hamas and israeli prime minister benjamin netanyahu's three prerequisites for peace we've also discussed binomics and the cost of financial illiteracy both by the president of the united states but also uh for us and in, in addition to the trump trials and some of the legal considerations as of now Let's go to Tony, who's been patient in Iowa. Tony, welcome to the show.
10: Brian, good evening. Thank you. Uh, you bet. Yeah, I just like, first like to reflect uh, on a few of the things that have been said before. Um, like as for Sharia, I've read parts of the Quran too, and it's uh, it's plagiarized from the the Bible. Originally, it was pretty benign, but like their version of Noah, they call it Noah. It, uh, it's, it goes where uh, God comes to um, Noah and says, hey, I'm going to wipe the, everybody out. And there's a dialogue, but at the end of the dialogue, Noah says, okay, then don't leave a single non-believer alive, as if, you know, God is waiting for Noah's permission. You know, like Noah approves, so okay, I'm going to go ahead and do what I told him I was going to do that mentality of, you know, well, um, you know, God might, might spare these unbelievers if, if we want them to, but, you know, it turns out that no, no, it's like, well, Noah approves, So yeah. If we should be like Noah, we should approve that. Yeah. These unbelievers have to be all wiped out. So, I mean,
2: yeah, I mean, kind of to, to that point, you know, when you talk about the, the, the Quran generally uh, you have uh, Islam that picks up, uh, with with an understanding uh you know out of the the Old testament and uh to a certain extent at the the onset of the New testament as well you know it, it does pick up with uh you know the the religious context uh, of both the Jewish faith and the Christian faith uh, although heading in an entirely different direction for example, you do have Jesus that is recognized uh by by Muslims. You do have to recognize, Jesus recognized as a significant figure. Now, they don't view him as the, the Savior. And then you get into, you know, what Mohammed called on his followers to, to do, and that's where you get into Sharia law specifically. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there there is uh, no doubt a, a point to be made there. Let's go to Avani. Avani, welcome to the show.
9: Yeah, well, we're here in St. Louis. And um, I've just been kind of concerned about the state of our country with the the people that are in control. It seems like everything they do is just dead set against us. They start out making policy, drafting policy to buy football uniforms for the football team. But when it comes out on the other end and they've passed it, they're buying queer outfits for transgender uh, uh, types. So... It's just kind of strange how how um, it just seems like um, simple policy gets manipulated, and um, by by the time it goes through the mill, it, it's a totally different, t- totally different legislation. Almost are are they pile it in with other uh, legislation, and and they sneak it through? And but it seems like everything they do is dead set against against us as a nation. Well, um, I think we need to build build a wall around Washington, D.C. and just start over. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, well, I, I get the sentiment. And, and, you know, we're talking about financial illiteracy, uh, you know, the the Biden administration. What you're also talking about is the agenda. So as we talk about, you know, fiscal matters and, and policy, one thing the left has been is highly intentional. Yeah, you know, I've often talked about so. uh has mark uh, mark has has been amazing over the course of time talking about the long game that has been played and the role that education and the education establishment has played in where we are as a society today and you can trace so much of it back to taking God out of schools and that plays a very big role because once you remove any sense of morality from society you can just kind of make things up as you go and and that is how so much of the the policy uh, like what you're you're talking about it hey we'll, we'll get funds for something that sounds good and then the next thing you know it is supporting you know like uh trans surgeries so you have taxpayer taxpayer funded uh, trans surgeries and so now we are are going to support uh, boys playing as as girls uh you know in in, uh, in grade school sports those types of things how it gets manipulated how our tax dollars are, are spent achieving those types of things it's no different than the southern border you'll have the biden administration you'll have democrats that doubt how much money that they are spending at the, the southern border where we're increasing spending to protect our border well no what, what they've done is they've increased the number of personnel at the southern border for the purpose of processing more illegal immigrants faster and then sending them to the destinations of their choosing. So they're spending more of our money to bring more of them in illegally faster. That is all part of how policy becomes bastardized. And it's what happens when you have a society of people that aren't necessarily minding the store, that aren't paying attention, and it's why it's really important informationally that we we stay informed, uh, but when you take a look at you know so much of of what happens in Washington, it, it's a reflection of us, right? I mean, we can we can blame Washington, talk about building a wall around it and leaving it like that. Washington has its its problems, but its problems are us ultimately, and that's where this must be overcome. We have Congress that we send to office. We have a president that we send to office, and if we as a society make ignorant decisions, then we are going to have ignorant politicians that are exacting outcomes there. But if we have agenda driven uh, politicians as well, if people are snowed and they have agenda driven uh, politicians, well, we see the result. And so back to the long game that's been played. Solinsky rules for radicals. Barack Obama. All the stuff that we've seen play out since the 60s, we've seen come to fruition. I was just talking about how so many of the bad actors around the world, China now provocating again, related to Taiwan. While we've got all the other conflicts of the world going on. There's going to be that sense of urgency there. Well, there also is right now, while they have Joe Biden as president on so many of these other social matters, we have so many radical uh maneuvers in in our society that uh, that have come into play i mean how many people even 10 years ago would have thought that we would have taxpayer funded trans surgeries taking place that you would have you know boys playing in in girls sports in grade school that these types of things would be defended so you're going to continue to see over the next year an exacerbation of all of those trends but it's also why it has to be defeated. And just as Gavin Newsom said, we shouldn't be striking Donald Trump's name from ballots. We should be attempting to defeat him at the ballot box. That's what we've got to do is we've got to win at the ballot box. That's how you take the country back. And that's how you make Washington, D.C. into something that you don't feel like you have to wall off. We need to have better representation there, period. And you know, so I was talking about the the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling to to strike Donald Trump's name from the ballot. I mean, that is as good of an example of what we are up against, where you have so much desperation out there by the left that they want to prevent you from even being able to vote for the person that you might want to vote for. Gives you an idea about how scared they are of, of Trump and how effective he may be if he were to become president yet again. And it's obviously absurd to suggest voters shouldn't even have the option to vote for a presidential candidate. Due to a crime that he's not even legally alleged to have committed in the criminal justice system. And we're in non criminal, but in, within a political context, where the authority for disqualification rests, a, a charge that Trump was acquitted of, of having committed by Congress during impeachment proceedings, which still stands as the legal precedent in the case. But this is how far on all fronts in society the left will go. So, what we need to do is inform ourselves. What we then need to do is inform those who are open-minded around us. And we need to be optimistic, not defeatist. And if we do this, we can begin to change hearts and minds. We have seen a lot of progress in many different places where people didn't think it would be the case, including most recently with young voters. Fox News, their most recent polling, showing that young voters are starting to break hard for Donald Trump over Joe Biden in the hypothetical rematch. That doesn't just happen. So the opportunity to turn this country around is there. And it's coming up next year. I'm Brian Mudd, in for the great one. Mudd Lovin'.
4: from the organization Network Contagion Research Institute finds the app, which of course is owned by Chinese parent company ByteDance, likely promotes and demotes content on the basis of whether it's aligned with or opposed to the interests of the Chinese government. Experts say content on China's version of TikTok is vastly different from content on the U.S. app. The Wall Street Journal ran a test creating several automated accounts registered as 13-year-old users with Within hours, TikTok started serving up what the journal calls highly polarized content, much of it anti-Israel.
2: Well, here's my surprise look. I mean, what else really should we expect from a Chinese controlled company? But the bigger problem is we continue to also have research that shows increasingly young adults continue to get news information from TikTok. I was just talking about Winning hearts and minds, reason to be optimistic heading into next year. And also how specific to young adults, we are seeing historic movement Uh, over 30 percent swing, a 36 percent swing between Election Day 2020 and current polling with the voting preferences of adults under 30 in a hypothetical rematch next year between Joe Biden and, and Donald Trump. But it's the getting there, again, that's going to be challenging. All the stops are going to be pulled out. And you've got the the propaganda war that's all part of this as well. You've got courts that are trying to keep Trump's name off of ballots in states. That will fail. That will fail. Discussed that at length last Thursday. If you want to check out the Mark Levin Show podcast, uh, it will fail. The U.S. Supreme Court will overturn the ruling. The only question if it is if it will be unanimous. And that will have a lot to say about the extent of radicalism on the left within the current configuration of the United States Supreme court. But nevertheless, we're going to have a lot that we're up against and it's all that much more for reason why it's important for us to stay informed and to share that information with others, because Lord knows uh, that there are no shortage of people and platforms that are working to do the opposite that are working to continue to indoctrinate. But then again, isn't that what the education establishment has done in so many different instances for decades now? So, again, this is something that we can overcome. Did you happen to have a, uh, a really nice Christmas, but you're still left wanting? Because you, one thing you wanted was the, the Democrat Party Hates America, Mark Levin's latest number one bestseller. Just wasn't there for you. How about getting yourself a late Christmas present you Grab your limited first edition Signed copy of the Democrat Party Hates America Yeah, First edition signed copy and Get it at LevinSign.com If you want that kind You have to go to LevinSign.com Or Maybe uh, you did end up getting everything you wanted But you know somebody around you who didn't Or uh, as I was talking about You have somebody who needs to be informed To make better decisions Well there you go great late gift idea for you it's been a pleasure being with you brian mudd in for the great one mark levin look forward to talking to you soon